I thought we would start today with uh, what's an unfortunate and inconvenient truth, but a truth nonetheless. And, and here's a truth uh, that you're probably already aware of, uh, but you may not think about very often. But the church uh, here in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, the church in the West is, is shrinking. It's, it's in decline. Uh, matter of fact, to, to paint a bit of a sobering picture of this decline, uh, here in the United States, uh, 3,500 people walk away from faith every day. Th- this is the latest. Uh, 3,500 people. So we, we should just stop, think about that, feel that for a moment. 3,500 people every day decide to walk away from faith here in this country. And, and what that means is, because there's consequence to that, non-churches, non-churches permanently close their doors every single day in this country. Uh, and, and to paint a bit of a broader picture, uh, back in 1990, uh, which, you know, doesn't seem all that long ago in some ways. Back in 1990, uh, the number of atheists, the number of agnostics uh, who identified as agnostic and atheist, uh, they were about 8% of the American population. Uh, today, uh, they have grown to 30%. Uh, during that same time period from 1990 on, uh, the number of Christians in 1990 uh, was 90% of the population. If you ask 90% of people, hey, are you a Christian? They would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. They self-identified as a Christian. Uh, But today, that number has dropped from 90% to 60%. Uh, Someone actually uh, posted online this past week that if you take the total number of conversions uh, of people who came to faith back in the first and the second great awakening and all all the Billy Graham crusades and you put all those numbers of people together, they do not match the number of people who have walked away from faith in the United States in the last 25 years. Now, this is important for us church people, and it's especially important for church leaders to know that this is happening. But knowing what's happening, that's important. But here's what's more important. Why? Why is that happening? Uh, Why is this happening? Why is there this mass exodus away from faith and away from church in the West and specifically here in our own country? Uh, Fuller University did a major study on this recently, and they looked at middle school, high school, college students, and college graduates, recent college graduates. And and they sought out the people that had left behind their faith, left behind their church, and they investigated what was the number one reason for that departure. And what they discovered was the number one reason for that demographic leaving their faith behind or leaving the church behind was that the church in some way from their perspective failed to be a safe place to express their doubts and to wrestle with big questions. Uh, Questions like, why do you say that? Why do you say that? You say that, but why do you say that? And you say you know this, but how do you know this? Or can you be sure that it's actually this way and not that way? How, how can you be sure about what you're saying? And, and questions like that. There just wasn't a safe place to ask those questions and to express those doubts. And then another study came out recently from Psychology of Religion and Spirituality. And, and basically, they dealt with the entire demographic of people who had walked away from faith and walked away from the local church. And, and they really found an echo of what the Fuller University study discovered. It concluded that the number one reason, the number one reason why people were leaving behind their faith was doubt, was doubt. Now, I can remember 14 years ago, this was not the number one reason. Uh, this wasn't really even in the top three. So this, this is something new. Over half the people who had left behind their faith and had walked away from the church said that they did so because of intellectual reasons. Um, they questioned what they were told was true and they questioned whether or not it was actually true or not. Uh, To put it as the study actually put it, they outgrew their faith. Uh, The childhood Bible stories um, seem to lack their relevance in the adult years. And and those same stories, which were so charming and entertaining and and wonderful, you know, in childhood, uh, in our adult years, for some people, it just became problematic and it became a source uh, of doubt, and it became a real problem for those who walked away. Um, answers from childhood, you know, I can remember a- asking, you know, lots of questions when I was a kid. It was not, it was not smiled upon uh, in the circles that I grew up in. It was actually, you know, not considered a good thing to question your faith or to question the people who were teaching you faith. Um, but I, I remember childhood answers like, you know, well, why do we believe this? Well, just because. 
just because. Well, that's what we believe uh, or the Bible says. And, you know, and for a lot of people, when they become adults, those, those, childhood, those childhood answers no longer are, are, are serving them into those adult years. Uh, at some point for a large group of people and a growing group of people, their reasonable doubts seem to be incompatible with their faith. Now, when it comes to doubt, uh, doubt is a serious thing. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's regarded as one of the great theological uh, intellects uh, really in American history, Jonathan Edwards, he had this to say about doubt. He says, the heart cannot receive what the mind has rejected. And if you think about that, you know that that's true, that the heart can't receive what the mind has rejected. If, if your mind is pushing something away, it's impossible for your emotions, it's impossible for your heart to connect with what your mind is actively rejecting. So in this sense, doubt is a really big deal. Uh, and if it's the case that our hearts can't receive uh, what our minds are rejecting, uh, then how we manage our doubts are, is of actually greater consequence and of greater importance than our doubts themselves. How we manage our doubts, how we treat our doubts, how we see our doubts, how we manage those doubts are actually of greater importance than the doubts that we have themselves. Now, with that said, uh, today uh, we're in part two of our series uh, called Full of It for the Holidays. And, and we're talking about how to make this particular holiday season truly happy because everybody wants to be happy during the holidays because after all, we say it over and over again, happy holidays, happy holidays, happy holidays. We wanna be happy during the holidays. We want this season to be truly wonderful and we want it to be happy and wonderful in such a way that what starts in this season, it carries over to all the other seasons. And, and that's what we were talking about. Last week we talked about, you know, if you want this season to be wonderful, then be grateful. And I hope that you've been able to incorporate that into your life this week. And, and here's what I would ask all of us here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Middlesbrough, hey, consider keeping that a part of your rhythm. Consider keeping that alarm. You don't have to keep it at 107. Maybe, maybe you put it first thing in the morning, but to continue to integrate and continue to incorporate gratitude as a way of practice in your life, gratitude to God, gratitude to other people. I promise you, it'll make your life better. It'll make you happier. It'll make this season and all the other seasons wonderful. I've seen many of you go to social media about it. I know that many people have received texts from other folks. And so I would just say, hey, take it seriously and keep it up. Take it seriously and keep it up. Because if you want the season to truly be wonderful, be grateful. Now, this is a relevant uh, subject matter that we're talking about in this series. Uh, because we currently live in a culture where not only are many people leaving faith behind, but over half of people in this country say that they are too busy, or I, I would suspect they just feel too busy. They feel too busy uh, to be happy and to enjoy life. And so in a culture where people are departing from faith and leaving behind the church and in a culture where so many people say, you know what, I'm just too busy, I'm too obligated, I, I, I'm spread too thin, I don't even have the bandwidth, I don't even have the emotional depth right now to be happy and to enjoy life. Now, if that's the culture and the world that we're living in, it's important for Jesus followers to model what true happiness looks like and what true life looks like and what a wonderful season and wonderful seasons of life look like. So we're talking about things that you can incorporate and integrate and apply to your life and into my life that will help us experience life to a greater degree, that will help us experience a greater degree of happiness in this season and all the seasons to come. And so today, with that in mind, I wanna talk about faith and wonder. Let's all just say this out loud together. Faith and wonder. Faith and wonder. Seems very Christmassy. You know, we're post-Thanksgiving now, Christmas season's upon us. Uh, faith and wonder. When it comes to faith, um, faith doesn't come easy to everyone. Uh, maybe for you, it does. For some people, faith just seemingly comes easy. Somebody says, hey, this is the way it is. This is what God says. This is what the scripture teaches. And for some of you, faith has just been easy your entire life, or so it has seemed easy. Uh, for others of you, for some of us, uh, faith is a bit more difficult. We have to scratch and claw and fight and work for and, and do our very best to keep hold of faith and to grow our faith and to develop our faith and to deepen our faith. Uh, but when it comes 
comes to faith, I, I have discovered through a lot of conversations, because I have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, you know, a lot of different ages, with a lot of different backgrounds. And the one thing that I think I've heard over and over and over throughout the years is a lot of people, they just have uh, a misunderstanding of faith. Um, they inherited it from childhood. They picked it up somewhere along the way, like a theological buffet where they took this and left this behind, took this and took that and left this behind. But a lot of people misunderstand faith. A lot of people think that faith is emotion. You know, if I don't feel it, then I don't have it. If I don't feel my faith, I don't have faith. But faith is not an emotion. Some people think that faith is a bargaining chip. You know, it's the coin that we have to put in the vending machine to get God, the vending machine, to do what we want God to do or to get God to do what we need him to do. That it's our currency, that it's our bargaining chip. It's our genie in a bottle that we rub when life gets tough and life gets difficult. But we know that's not the case. Faith is not a bargaining chip. It's not currency. It's not a way that we bribe God. God or cajole God or control God. Uh, it, it's not the way that faith works. Faith isn't certainty. And, and maybe this is the biggest, I think, misunderstanding of all, that a lot of people, a lot of people may be walking away from faith because they think that faith means that they're certain about all the things that they've been told are true, that they have to be certain about a number of things, or they have to be certain about all the things in order to follow Jesus or to be part of the local church. But faith is not certainty. Matter of fact, faith and doubt walk hand in hand together. Uh, you cannot have faith without also having doubt at the same time, because if you have certainty, by the very definition of certainty, if you have certainty, you cannot possess Faith. Faith is walking not by sight. It's walking by a conviction. It's walking by a belief. It's faith that betrays sometimes what we can see and what we can hear and what we can lay our hands on. Uh, faith is this really big deal. Uh, I was reading a book recently and I'm not finished with it, so I'm not endorsing it because I don't know if I agree with everything in it. I don't know if I've ever read a book that I agree with everything in it. Um, but I have read this book and, and it really has just challenged me on, on the idea of faith. And, and Paul Tillich, who's a German philosopher, theologian, he says that faith in many ways is a concern with and a pursuit of ultimate reality. Uh, and ultimate reality being God, because God is the ultimate reality. And all reality flows out of the ultimate reality being God. And he says that, that faith, you know, in, in a basic understanding, it is a concern with ultimate reality. That if you're concerned with what's ultimately true, if you're concerned with what's ultimately real, and if you are pursuing, actively pursuing ultimate reality, what's ultimately true, what's ultimately real, then that in a way is a part of faith. Now, when you dig into the scriptures and, and you look at different verses, you'll find that the scriptures, you know, in, in similar way says that faith is a belief, that faith is a fluctuating belief. Uh, matter of fact, some of our heroes of faith, it's like one moment they've got great faith, the next moment it's like, where did your faith go? So scripture, it, it, it paints this picture of faith as being fluctuating up and down. Sometimes it grows, sometimes it shrinks, sometimes it's present, sometimes it's absent, but faith is this confidence. And it exists along this, this, this spectrum of degrees that it's this confidence that God exists. And whatever degree that confidence is, it may be a greater degree for you, may be a lesser degree for me, but it's this fluctuating spectrum, this degree of confidence that we have, this belief that God exists. And not only that God exists, that God who exists has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we believe as Christians, that God exists and that God has revealed himself through Jesus of Nazareth. That the God who Jesus revealed is who God truly is and what God is truly like. And that God who is revealed in Jesus will ultimately do what God has promised that one day he will do. Uh, that's faith. It's an ultimate concern with what's ultimately true, what's ultimate reality. It's a belief, sometimes fluctuating, sometimes growing, sometimes shrinking. It's this belief that God exists. And for Christians, it's a belief that says that God has revealed himself to the world through Jesus. And Jesus shows us what God is truly like because when 
You've seen Jesus. You've seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You know, the eternal Logos of John 1 became flesh, dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And, and that's part of what we celebrate at Christmas, that God came near, that God manifested himself, that God revealed himself, that he stepped out from behind the curtain. We could only see God through the fog and through the shadows and through the mud. But then Jesus stepped onto the scene and Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen God. As you understand me, you understand God. When you hear me, you're hearing the voice of God. When you're hearing my teaching, you're receiving the teaching of God. That's Christian faith. And faith, that type of faith, it walks hand in hand with doubt. It walks hand in hand with doubt. And I'm afraid that a lot of people think that whenever their faith is met with doubt, that they've got to pick one or the other. But you don't have to pick one or the other when it comes between faith and doubt. Faith walks hand in hand with doubt. Faith walks hand in hand with our struggles, our intellectual struggles, our emotional struggles. Uh, it walks hand in hand with our objections. Say, well, how do you know that? How can you be sure of that? I see that happening all throughout the scriptures. I see it happening in the Old Testament. I see the people closest to Jesus walking hand in hand with doubt. I see people who were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Thomas, faith and doubt, faith and struggle, faith and objections, faith and curiosity, all walking hand in hand. And we see this all throughout the scripture. So that's faith. But then there's wonder. And we don't talk a lot about wonder. And when it comes to wonder, uh, there's a lot of experts beginning to talk about this more and more. That if you want a happier life, if you want a better life, then you should allow yourself some time and some margin to wonder, to allow your mind to wonder. Now, some of you, I can already hear what you're saying internally. Well, that's not my personality. That's not who I am. That's not how I'm wired. That is how you're wired. That's who you are because God put the ability for you to be able to wonder and imagine. He put that in you and that's his thumbprint on you. And if you wanna be happier, if you wanna make this season more wonderful, then you have to learn how to couple your faith to a sense of wonder. Uh, you have to allow yourself to chase thoughts that leads you to awe. I mean, think about it. When is the last time that you were in awe of something because you were just thinking about it and it was so enormous, it was so big, it was so amazing that you were just in awe of it? When's the last time you allowed yourself to explore thoughts of grandeur, the grandeur that's interwoven throughout the world and into the universe and the cosmos, just to think about the enormity and the wonder of it all. Uh, University of Psychologists, uh, Ethan Cross, he said this about wonder. He says, wonder is what we feel. It's what we experience when we come across something bigger and something greater than ourselves that we cannot easily understand or explain. That's wonder. It's when we come up to something that's bigger and greater than what we are that we have a difficulty fully understanding it and fully describing it. That's wonder. That's awe. And I'm talking about things that have vastness to it. I'm talking about things that have complexity to it. I'm talking about things that have a mystery built into it. Uh, I'm talking about the night sky. And you walk outside and you look up at the night sky and you're thinking about how many trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and light years away the nearest star is. And you begin to think about the speed of light and you begin to think about how long it would actually take going at the speed of light to get to the nearest star. And you realize it's so far beyond ever how long you will live in this life. And you, you begin to realize how big the universe is and how vast it is and you're like, Wow. I mean, you're just, you feel that sense of wonder or, or you know, you consider the depths of the ocean and the Mariana trenches and, and how deep it is. And we don't even, we don't even know what's down there. Do you know that 90% of the oceans and the floor of the ocean, it's yet to be discovered. It's yet to be explored. We have no idea what's down there. Maybe that's where Bigfoot's hiding at. We have no idea. I, I mean, it's so deep. It's so amazing. It's like to just sit there and think about it. We walk up to the edge of the sand and we look out there and we see that horizon and we we see where the water meets the sky and it's just so enormous. But then you think about what's below the water and what's above in the sky. And it's like, wow, or the complexity of reality itself. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm not very smart. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm not the dullest knife in the drawer, but I'm certainly not the sharpest one. But when, when I start reading about things that I have no ability to understand, uh, I, I was telling, you know, last night, the family, I, I talk about these things sometimes and they just look at me like I've got four heads. And I was like, have y'all thought about quantum entanglement lately? You know, I, I, I was reading about this. If you take two, if you take two, you know, atoms and, and you entangle them with each other, and I don't even 
even understand how you entangle two atoms together, but if you entangle them together and then you separate them and you send one of those atoms to the far ends of the universe, but then you hold this atom and you're able to manipulate it and say you turn it counterclockwise, that other atom at the end of the universe will begin to turn counterclockwise. And I'm like, oh my gosh. How is that even possible? I don't even understand that. It's like, wow, I don't even have to understand it to be in awe of it. But, but when you just, you, you hear things, you learn things, you, you listen to people and, and you, you begin to understand just how complicated and how, how amazing reality itself is. I mean, just try to sit down and understand time and space. Just, just try to understand that for a moment and how you can bend time and space and, and all the things that Einstein tried to bring to the table with the theory of relativity and, and all the things that we've been trying to make sense of ever since he came up with that whole theory and, and that equation. When, when you look at art or music or the fact that mathematics is built into everything yeah. and, and what Newton said that is the, the language of God that everything has mathematics built into it. You know, uh, the, the, the Fibonacci equation or the Fibonacci numbers and, and how it's built into pine cones and flowers and the human face and the human finger and even the DNA molecule. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how mathematics and the patterns of mathematics is built into every single thing. And we just don't sit down and we just don't pause enough to think, this is amazing. We are in an amazing world. We are amazing machines. We are, as the psalmist said, wonderfully, fearfully created. We look up and we say, oh, the heavens do declare the glory of God. And we look around, it's like we, we don't allow ourselves to wonder. Wonder is when we get to the borderlands of what we know and what we possibly can't fully understand. That, that's when wonder begins. We get to the edge of what we know and what we understand and, and we begin to embrace and we begin to face and we begin to try to explore what we could never fully understand and what we can never fully articulate. That, that's where wonder happens. Wonder opens our mind. It, it opens our minds, our souls, our emotions to beauty, to mystery, to awe. Oftentimes we wanna reject it. We wanna reject mystery, but wonder makes us available to mystery. And part of doubt is driven by mystery. And sometimes when we don't understand how to manage our doubt, the mystery that fuels our doubt, sometimes we allow it to undermine our faith and it should never be that way. And so we all should look for opportunities to open ourselves to wonder, especially when it comes to the Christmas story. And I think a lot of us, we, we're just now adults and we, we've almost outgrown the ability to find awe and wonder in the Christmas story. For a lot of people, it's a lingering story from childhood, which seemingly has no adult relevance to it. It's been so romanticized, commercialized, sanitized, that it's become fictionalized in the minds of many, I hope not, but maybe even most adults. So I wanna dig in the Christmas story today. I wanna to start with Luke, the gospel of Luke, who sets out to tell not only this, the story of Christmas, but the story of Jesus. And, and that's what Luke is doing. And to tell the story of Jesus, he wanted to start at the very beginning. And this is how he started. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he wants us to know, hey, what I'm telling you is a big deal. And what I'm telling you is truthful. This is from eyewitnesses. He says, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too, I know Matthew did. And I know that Mark's working with Peter. And I know John. I know he's gonna write something down. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, because Luke's a lot of, like a lot of you. Well, I know there's some other people doing it, but I think I'll do it better. And I think I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a clearer job with it. And so he, he was motivated to write. He was inspired by God to, to put this down. And he says, and I'm writing this so that you may have the certainty, that you may know the ultimate reality, so that you may know what's ultimately true of the things that you have been taught. So he wanted his audience to know, hey, I'm not getting this story from a guy who got it from a guy who got it from a guy who heard it in the stall at the bathroom. I didn't get it there. This is a story, I've investigated it. I've investigated it by the people who were involved, by the very eyewitnesses. And this story that I'm gonna tell you, it's anchored to history. So I've checked, I've cross-checked, I've fact-checked, and then rechecked what I'm about to write, and I'm telling you, it is true. 
Now, for those of you who lean into doubt a little bit more than others, your mind has a little bit more question mark uh, than a lot of people's may have. Uh, just so you know, FYI, Luke, in all of his writings in the New Testament, uh, he has 84 historical and eyewitness details in his writings. Among those, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, all without a single mistake. Um, he records about small towns, politicians, local slang, topographical features. He, he writes about weather patterns in certain areas. He writes about water depth, all 100% accurate, fact-checked by archaeology and by history. In Luke 3, he mentions eight political leaders, which have now been found by archaeology and history uh, to have been absolute figures of history who served uh, in the year 29 AD and around that time frame of which Luke was writing. Uh, so the question is, why would somebody like Luke construct a lie and then try to embed it into history? Uh, because when I doubt, and I do, I have to come back in the face of what I don't know, I have to come back and revisit what I do know. And I have to ask myself the question, well, if I can't believe any of this and I can't trust any of this, why would Luke go through all of this trouble to embed a false story inside the true story of Christmas or inside the true story of history? Uh, why would he be willing to endanger himself? Uh, because it was putting himself in danger to do so. And, and the, the answer is really quite simple. It's because Jesus died, was buried, he was raised from the dead, and there were eyewitnesses of it. And Luke said, this is a story that's gotta be told. So he begins at the beginning and he tells us about Jesus's birth. He says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and that's Mary's cousin, uh, who's the wife of Zechariah, uh, they're old. They've already been told earlier in the chapter that they too are gonna have a son in their old age. Uh, and it's gonna be uh, a guy by the name of John that you're gonna know in the New Testament as John the baptizer or John the Baptist. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, just... Just time out, many of you know this, but some of you may not. If you're gonna expect God to do something big uh, in the first century, it wouldn't be in Nazareth. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. Every time I think about this, I, I think about, you know, for just our church folks here at the Creek, uh, if you were looking for God to do something big once upon a time, you probably wouldn't have looked for it on Hawk Creek Road. But God loves to do that. God, God loves to use unexpected people, unexpected places, unsuspected settings, and God just loves to just show up and show off. That, that, that's what God loves to do. You see it all throughout history. So Nazareth is a place full of nobodies from nowhere. Nazareth is a no place full of nobodies. Uh, and God, which this is the part I really like, he steps outside of the religious establishment uh, of Jerusalem and the temple power structure and when you think of where people would have expected God to do something big, he would have probably started the temple. He would have probably started with the high priest. He would have probably started with the Sadducees and the Pharisees or the Supreme Court, uh, but he didn't. Uh, he decided to send an angel to a teenage girl living in Nazareth. Uh, and it says, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man by the name of Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, for every good Jewish person uh, living at this time, everybody knew that when the Messiah came and there was this expectation among the Jewish people uh, for over 2,000 years that one day God was gonna send a Messiah. God was gonna send a king. God was gonna send a savior that was going to save the world from sin, sorrow, and death. And when this savior would come, he would be a descendant of Abraham and we'd, he would be from the house of David. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 2 Samuel 5 and 7. That when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's going to be out of the house of David. So everybody knew that. So we're told that Mary is engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David. So this is what's so great about the story. Luke is telling a story that's standing on the shoulders of the stories and the events in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament started this story and the New Testament is the fulfillment of this story. The Old Testament tells us about the promise made and then tells us about the history of the people that God made this promise to, that God was gonna use as the channel to birth this promise into the world and bring the Messiah to the nations. And so the Old Testament is the pre-story to the story that Luke is telling. And so he says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is, let's all say that together, with you. Now, for Mary, it didn't feel like that so much. It didn't feel like the Lord was with her. She's a teenage girl living in a culture that did not value women. 
that treated women like property, that didn't allow women to be educated, that just thought that women had a very narrow space and a very limited value in the world, which mainly existed to serve men and have babies and to be available for labor. And, and she grew up in that world. It was very difficult. And, and for some of us, it's hard to imagine what that world was like, but her world wasn't easy. Uh, it wasn't easy to live when she lived. It was hand to mouth. You didn't keep things in the refrigerator. You didn't keep things on ice. It was hand to mouth. It was hard to survive. You, you were living in an occupied territory by the Romans and Rome is in charge. Food is scarce. And besides that, the Romans are just, they are thugs. I mean, they are heartless. They have no compassion. Uh, right here in Mary's backyard, when Herod died in four BC, there was a little bit of an insurrection, a little bit of an uprising. And there was a group of people who tried to storm a Roman armory uh, near Nazareth and to get the weapons and to try to you know, raise a sword against Rome, uh, but they were unsuccessful. And Rome, to make a point, uh, crucified 2,000 Jewish people right there around Nazareth. Uh, just in the years leading up to this part of the story that, Mar that Luke is telling us about. So Mary, Mary had seen some things. Mary had heard some things. Her family had told her the stories. She knew how difficult life was. And, and to say that the Lord was with her that was not necessarily something she could emotionally connect to. That, that was not something that she, could, that she could really just put her finger on and say, you know what, I, I'm certain about this because her circumstances wouldn't allow her to be certain about it. Mary was in a very difficult world at a very difficult time, but yet the angel says, the Lord is with you. Mary, this is something you're gonna have to take by faith. This is something you're gonna have to trust. Even when it doesn't emotionally feel true, even when your emotions feel disconnected from what I'm telling you ultimate reality is. The ultimate reality is that God is with you. The ultimate truth is God is with you. You don't feel that way, but I'm telling you, this is a matter of faith. You're gonna have to trust that what I'm telling you is true. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and, and wondered, there's the word, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Uh, the word troubled there can mean agitated, perplexed, confused, She's emotionally, intellectually upended. I mean, she's being visited by an angel. Uh, I, I mean, who wouldn't be emotionally, intellectually upended uh, being visited by an angel? And, and I thought about this this week. You know, a lot of times I've been tempted to say, man, I sure would love to be visited by an angel. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, after we cleaned the floor up and um, I, I, I got some new clothes on and, and sat down and, and maybe we could talk then, but you know what I think I would do afterward? I talk myself out of it. And Trevor, you need to go see a doctor. You need an MRI. You need a CT. You've got a tumor. <laughs> the only people who see angels have tumors. And you must have one. You know, I would talk myself out of it. And, and just because you're having, and have you ever had an interaction with a real person? And after the interaction, you second guess that interaction? What really happened? What was really said? You ever done that? Please, somebody just shake a head. I, I'm feeling very exposed right now. It's like you, have, you sit down with somebody. It's like we had dinner together. It's like, did we really talk about that? Did that really happen? And it's like, well, maybe it didn't. Maybe I'm just misremembering. I mean, we can talk ourselves almost out of anything or into anything for that matter. And so she's wondering. I mean, literally, she's trying to make sense of it all. And so what the word wonder means, it's, it's like you're balancing an account. You take things that, that doesn't intellectually, emotionally add up and you're trying, you're trying to fit it all together. And so you wonder, she's trying to make sense of all this. Here's an angel and she's pondering, you know, what in the world's going on here? And, and Mary is getting taken to the borderlands of what she knows and what she can understand. And she's now facing what she can't possibly fully understand or ever fully articulate or describe to anybody else. So at the borderlands of what we know and what we can't fully know, that's where we wonder, that's where we wrestle, that's where we ponder, that's, that's where we have to give ourselves time to think. So this doesn't make sense to her immediately. And so she wonders and she wonders and she wonders. And as she's thinking, it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call his name Jesus. He's gonna be great. He's gonna be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And this is the echo of the Old Testament promise that was recorded through the law and the prophets. And so he says, God's ready to keep his promise, Mary, and he's gonna keep this promise. 
and you're at the very center of this plan. Now, Mary's a teenager, probably 13 or 14 years old, and a different world, a different time. Uh, that, that can seem a bit strange to us. That, that can seem a bit troubling to us in our 21st century sophistication. But in that world, not so much. 13, 14, she's engaged because that's what you did at that time in the world. She's 13, 14, she's engaged. Uh, she's young, but she knows biology. Uh, she's watched the animals at the farm. Uh, she knows what happens. Uh, she knows the birds and the bees and she knows all that stuff. And, and now the angel's telling her, hey, I'm taking you to the edge of everything you think you know and how everything happens and how everything will be. And now I'm gonna bring you to the borderlands of what you can't possibly fully understand what you possibly can't fully ever articulate. And you're gonna get pregnant, Mary. And you're not married yet and, and you're a virgin. And so this 13, 14 year old girl who's engaged uh, but never had sexual intercourse, um, she has, believe it or not, questions. Now, let me tell you how to read the scriptures, uh, not because I know best, but I just think this is a good practice. Uh, sometimes you should play what if. What if the scripture said this instead? What if the angel said, hey, you're gonna conceive and give birth to a son? And what if Luke had said, and then Mary said, Blessed art me among women. I receive this duty, this calling from the most high God. I walk in it. It makes perfect sense to me. Or, or something along those lines. And it'd be like, come on, that sounds so not reasonable. That's so divorced from reality. That just, I can't even believe such a thing. And we should feel that way if that's what the scripture said. But that's not what the scripture said. The scripture said that Mary had a question. And she says, how will this be a reasonable Expect a question. How would this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. I, I know myself. I know my story. Gabriel, I, I don't even know if I should be talking about my virginity to an angel, but uh, here I am. I, I don't know if this is bad manners or not, but here we are. We're discussing my virginity. And as a virgin, someone who's never had sex, angel, uh, you're telling me that I'm going to get pregnant. And I just want to go on record saying, How? Is this going to happen? How can this be? Now, this is important. This is healthy doubt. And I'll tell you how we know this a little bit later. This is healthy doubt. This is genuine curiosity. This is what we would expect. This is what any of us would have. This is what we should have. Whenever we get to the borderlands of what we can know and what we can't fully know, we should have healthy doubt about what's true, what's ultimately true, what's really true. We should have genuine curiosity at the same time. She's trying to make sense of everything. You know who I am genuinely afraid of? People who are not worried about trying to make everything make sense. I'm worried about people who don't want everything to make sense. I want everything to make sense. I think we should want everything to make sense. I'm not saying that we can always make things make sense, but I'm saying I think it's just a good practice that we should always want to try to make things make sense. Now that was about as clear as mud and, and I just throw it out there to let you chew on it and you can come back to it because I'm sure you wrote all of that down. But she's trying to make sense of all of this. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with trying to make sense of what you can't fully know and fully understand. There's nothing wrong with trying to make sense of what you can't understand that God is saying or what God is announcing or what you feel like God is revealing. There's nothing wrong with having healthy doubt about that. There's nothing wrong with having genuine curiosity about that. There's nothing wrong with trying to make sense of that. God created us to be rational and curious. We wanna understand things. We just do. What do little kids ask? Why? 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 How? How? Hey, you can't go there. Why? You know, uh, here, this works. How? And they're just always asking questions. Now, Mary's question, how can this be? It signals openness, not resistance. It signals curiosity, not closed-mindedness. Her curiosity, her question is reasonable. Her question is understandable. Th this is what we would call critical thinking. This is asking questions. This isn't being stuck. This is rebuttal. This is asking questions. It's actually taking a step, trying to discover what is ultimately true, what is ultimately of the truest reality. What do we do? What should we do? We ask questions in the dark, why? So that we can have light. We ask questions in our confusion, why? So that we can find resolution. We ask questions in our doubt so that we can lay our hands on what is true. Our questions are often the evidence of our faith, not the absence of our faith. Our doubts, our curiosities are not evidence that you don't have faith. 
It's actually oftentimes an evidence that you do have faith, your curiosity, your questions. Our questions, it keeps us from closing our mind. It keeps us from closing our ears. It keeps us from closing our eyes and holding on to a lie unnecessarily. Mary has healthy doubt. And healthy doubt is a sign of caring about and wanting to know what's true. And I don't miss that. Healthy doubt is a sign of caring about what's ultimately true. And not only do you care about it, but you want to know about what's ultimately true. That's healthy doubt. Somebody who has doubt, but they're not interested in exploring what may, may be ultimately true, or they just rely on their emotions to determine what's ultimately true, that's not healthy doubt. You see, when it comes to healthy doubt, God doesn't condemn us for our doubt. God doesn't condemn us for our healthy questions, our healthy curiosity. God, listen, some of you need to hear this. God doesn't regard our questions as faithlessness. God doesn't, God doesn't regard our questions as apostasy. We can question things out loud and it doesn't mean that you're without faith. It doesn't mean that you're an enemy of God or the enemy of the church. Big questions about important things is just a sign that you're unsatisfied with your current level of knowledge or understanding. That's all that means. Matter of fact, I could pull a verse out of the Old Testament. My people are destroyed for a lack of what? Knowledge. So whenever you have important questions about important things, it's just a sign that you're not satisfied with your current level of knowledge or understanding. And there's nothing wrong with that, provided that you truly want a greater level of understanding and knowledge. And when you do genuinely wanna know that, it puts you into a position where you explore, where you investigate, you take faith as a serious matter. That's what it means. When you're willing to have genuine, healthy curiosity and ask questions, it means you take faith seriously. You don't minimize it. You don't see it as something inconsequential or not important. Now, in this story, there's a bit of a parallel going on with, with, with Mary and Gabriel. And, and it, it's a play on his earlier interaction with Zechariah, the priest, the religious establishment. Professional priest, old man, got a wife who's up there in years. And Zechariah says, you know, or Gabriel says, you're gonna have a baby. And, and then Zechariah responded, how can I be sure this is gonna happen? Now, what we can determine is that Zechariah did not have a healthy curiosity. He, he, he did not have a healthy sense of, you know, exploration. Uh, his doubt, he did not manage correctly because we know because he was sentenced to, meet, be, to be mute. He wasn't allowed to speak until his, his son was born. And so God handled it in a much different way. It, it seems like the questions were similar, but the intent was much different. Mary is asking a question, investigating, gathering information, all the things that faith requires. And that is what faith requires. Exploration, asking questions, gathering information. She's not willing to believe it blindly, nor should you, nor should me, nor should anybody in the world. Faith is based on information. Faith is based on fact. Faith is based on evidence. And you track the evidence to the borderlands of what you can fully know. And then it points you in the direction of what you can't fully know, fully understand. And it's always gonna be that step from what you fully know to what you can't fully know. We call that step faith. We call that step trust. I, I love what Tim Keller uh, writes about this. He says it way better than I can. Just listen to his words. He says, what we see is that the Bible's view of doubt is wonderfully nuanced. In many circles, skepticism and doubt are considered an absolute unmitigated good. On the other hand, in a lot of conservative and religious circles, any and all questioning or doubting is thought to be bad. If you are in a church youth group and you have questions about the Bible, the pastor may bark at you. You shouldn't doubt. You have to have faith. What you have in the Bible is neither view, uh, Keller says. There is a kind of doubt that is a sign of closed mind, a closed mindedness. And there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt, listen to this, seeks answers. That's Mary. Some doubts seek answers. And some doubts is a defense against the possibility of answers. That is so good. There are people like Mary who are open to the truth and are willing to relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are those like Zachariah who uses doubt as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed. There's a lot of people in our culture who say, I just can't believe I doubt, but they are not open to exploration. They're not open 
to a discussion. They're not open to conversation and to facts. And then he asked this question, what kind of doubt do you have? The kind that seeks answers or this type that allows you to maintain control over your own life, that you're not really interested in getting to the borderlands of wonder? Are your doubts erupting in questions? Is it resulting in an exploration of what's true or ultimately true? Are, are your doubts pushing you to be open-minded or closed-minded? That's how you know if it's healthy, if it's genuine, if you're managing it correctly. If your doubt is seeking answers or if your doubt has become a defense against seeking answers, only you know the answer to that question. Only you know that. He goes on to say, he says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blindly go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of the smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts. That's what Mary's doing. She's listening to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after a long reflection. Faith is always a process. Nobody goes from no faith to faith in a leap. Nobody goes from faith to great faith in one single leap. It's usually one step in front of the others. It's a series of steps that's a result of asking questions, reading, having conversations, thinking, reflecting, the very things that we see Mary doing. Doubts, this is, this is healthy doubt, can inspire wonder. Like, how? How can this be? How could all of this, how could this? And then the conversation ends with this. The angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit, Mary, will come upon you if you want to know how. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One born to you will be the Son of God. There's no precedent for this. This is not what you would call normal or natural. This is supernatural. This is abnormal. So again, she's at the ends of what she can fully know. And she's staring in the face what she can't fully know or understand. And she wonders about all of this. That's all she's left to do. For me, my problem in my life hasn't been asking questions. It's been being able to stop asking questions. And sometimes I've not always managed my doubt in a healthy way. For the long time, because of the way I was raised, I would feel bad about my questions. I, I, I thought it was a lack of faith. I thought there was something wrong with me, but, but I'm working. I, I'm trying to work on this. I'm, I'm trying to, to push through this to see that my questions and your questions that, that it's a quest for what's true, for what's ultimately true, what's ultimate reality. And that's nothing that we have to be ashamed of or be embarrassed. But, but this is what we call the virgin birth. And I'm just telling you, this is a real head scratcher. It's like, and I've done a lot of reading about it and I wish I could tell you, and I'm just gonna throw out, you know, there's everything from parthenogenesis, you know, meiosis splits a cell and one cell meets up with another cell that's been split. And we've seen this happen in sharks and birds and snakes where uh, 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 an organism can reproduce itself without a mate. Uh, it fertilizes itself. I, I mean, it's just amazing, you know. It, one cell hooks up with another and they fertilize itself and boom, there you go. I mean, uh, this summer in Cambridge, uh, they released a scientific study that they discovered how to turn on a genetic switch in fruit flies that allowed them to give birth without a mate. They flipped the virgin birth switch on in fruit flies. And it's like, okay. And I've read articles and, and scholarly articles about maybe Mary had a genetic abnormality herself and she was able to pass both X and Y chromosomes on to her male son. I mean, the speculations are endless, but here's what I've discovered. The virgin birth may not be as unthinkable as what we used to think it was. Because as we learn more, we don't know if God used the laws of nature or the potential that nature has or whether God just supervened all of it. We don't know. How? We're left with only wonder. We're at the borderland of what we can fully know and can't possibly fully know. And then the angel says, for no word from God will ever fail. Mary, what you need to know is, you're not gonna understand everything. You can't. Doubt is inevitable for the rest of your life. Questions, inevitable for the rest of your life. Curiosities, inevitable for the rest of your life. But here's something that you can hold on to all along the way. Nothing is impossible for God. No word from God will ever fail. Everything God says, is true, is true. Everything that God says will become true, will become true. And then she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me. May it be fulfilled. And then the angel left from her. That's faith.
Faith is what keeps you moving. It's what keeps you walking when you're not sure where you're going. You just take one step at a time, one step at a time, and you're at the borderland and you don't fully know, you can't fully understand, but the evidence and the information, it leads you to wanna take one more step in search of light and truth and reality that's only found in God. Her cousin Elizabeth saw Mary later and says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promise to her. Fortunate, blessed, better off, privileged, happy. She chose to believe that the God who promised that one day a Messiah will come through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse, the house of David. That Messiah that would be born according to the prophets in Bethlehem to a virgin who would have a ministry starting in Galilee, who would perform miracles, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, be wrongfully accused, silent before his accusers, have his hands and feet nailed, who would be buried in a rich man's tomb but raised on the third day. Mary didn't know all of that in that moment, but what she did know, she trusted that she could hold on and trust God with. So I say to all of us, as we take our cues from Mary, the one who is blessed among women, if you want this season to be truly wonderful. Be faithful. Be full of that kind of faith that walks hand in hand with doubt and with questions and with exploration. A weak faith is an untried faith. A weak faith is an unscrutinized faith. It's a faith that's not explored, that doesn't lean into curiosity or asking questions. If your faith is coupled with doubt, Congratulations, you're a part of a good company of people that we read about all throughout the scriptures. In this holiday season, in all the seasons to come, I would say happiness is found in a faith that doesn't fail to believe that God won't fail. We may not have all the details of how, may not have all the details all wrapped up, but in the end, we trust that we'll have a faith that doesn't fail to believe that God he won't fail, that he is ultimate reality. He is ultimately true. And what he says is true is true. And what he says ultimately will be true will become true one day. Father, I pray that we could have this type of faith. I pray that we could have a faith that learns to walk hand in hand with doubt, that we could get to the borderlands of what we know and what we can understand. And we can stare square in the face, all the things that we can't know and can't fully understand. But God, we would continue to ask questions and we would continue to explore and we would continue to hold on to the belief that you can be trusted. And even when we take a step into what is unknown, not fully known, God, we can always believe that you won't fail us. Your promises will never fail. I pray that we have that kind of faith this season to know that you're true and you're good and you're faithful. You always have been, and you always will be. In Jesus' name, let's all stand together and sing about this.